Hello and welcome to the first and possibly last episode of the Free Flow podcast. Um, here I talk about the flow of information in the 20th century and just in particular the effect that the internet has had on the attention and information economy. Um, so before we dive into what the internet has changed about the way we consume and digest media, I feel like we should take a look at what the media landscape was like before the internet. So before the free press became enshrined as a right, um, information was in the hands of the state or the absolute ruler of the state. Um, but after the popularization and I guess adoption of the free press, media was in the hands of a select um, number of institutions. Think The Times or um, other broadcasting services that dom dominated their field. So um, the two fields in question were usually print and later television. With the internet, all that has changed um, because for the first time ever, citizens are able to um, share events in real time as they happen. This is because they have the um, technology needed to share it and just their mobile phone. Um, and they also have the platforms needed to share it in the form of various social media. Um, this has obviously led to um, less market share for the traditional powerhouses of our media um, landscape. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this, but the number I think the most important reasons I want to focus on are the big contrast between what's allowed on the internet and what's allowed on television. Um, in my opinion, and basically in reality, the internet is a lot less tame than television. There are certain things you can share online that would not be allowed anywhere on television, but there is a place online for every sort of content, be it the mundane or the obscene. There are um, message boards and websites like 4chan and 8chan dedicated almost exclusively to gore. Um, but yeah, the overall effect of this is that um, the government and traditional media organizations have less power over what information is shared and how it's shared. And this has had some real world effects. I think the first and probably most important example of our lifetimes comes from the Arab Spring and the self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi, um, who set himself on fire in protest um, after his, um, his, his stand was about to be confiscated. And in any other time period, that probably would not have been picked up in the way it was. That video was shared across the Arab world and across the world in general. And it really, really became um, a rallying point for the entire Arab Spring. It's very much considered the, the spark that lit the flame. Um, more recently, however, you have the um, women's protests in in Afghanistan against the Taliban, which is something that would have been unthinkable less than a decade ago when we, when the West was first introduced to the Taliban. Um, again, I think it's a consequence of these women 
being able to freely consume and digest the information they choose or just, you know, not being um, protected in this in the same way they would if the internet was censored in their country. Um, from the West, though, and in and an example from, um, I guess, a context closer to home, just because it's a democracy, you have the, I guess I'll call it the phenomenon of hashtag activism, where um, people share online. There are quite a few movements that have picked up speed. Hashtag Me Too has been on the internet since 2006, starting on MySpace. The Free Palestine movement has picked up a lot of steam just because for the first time ever, people in the West have video proof and footage of what it's like living in um, the occupied lands in Gaza. Um, but I think the most prescient and probably most transformative example of this happening has to be the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, racial prejudice has been a long time, uh, been a long time problem in both the US and just the world in general. But um, for the first time, people around the world have a, a space, a safe space to share and document all the horrible um, episodes of racial prejudice, particularly um, racial prejudice suffered at the hands of state authorities. Um, so the internet has kind of been, in some cases, just the antidote to censorship. I would put it, it's kind of an oversimplification, but when something is as untamed and as free as the internet, it's much, much, much harder to um, get control of it, to, you know, just reach it by the neck and just grab it. But at the same time, the governments that have dedicated themselves to um, taming this beast have done so with great and often scary success. Um, so for every free state who have, you know, um, had the internet acting as a check and balance on their power, just through the fact that citizens, again, have the power to share what they want, when they want, to who they want, um, there have been, particularly in, in China and Russia, examples of um, governments using the internet to limit freedom of expression and freedom of action and freedom of speech. I think we should start with China just because it is probably, in my opinion, the worst case scenario for what could happen when the government retains control of the internet. They have managed to construct a state surveillance system so deep that we can't comprehend just how deep it can stare into the lives of its citizens. Um, just searching up the wrong thing on the internet can get you a knock at the door and potentially more. Um, this um, kind of extreme online surveillance has also been used probably most influenced infamously in the Xinjiang province in the north of China to crack down on the Uyghur Muslim population. Um, behaviors they've been checking have been so mundane 
as to include stuff like entering through the back door instead of the front door or just suspicious Google searches or even just and suspicious searches can include just a place to order a Quran. But, you know, they have the access to that information and because it's an authoritarian country, they can do what they want with it. And they're choosing to use that as, you know, suspicious activity in heavy inverted commas and have used that to justify detaining millions of these these Muslims in, I mean, basically concentration camps, but what the Chinese are calling um, re-education camps. On the other side, probably less dystopian, but equally as interesting as the situation in Russia. Russia does not have these strong restrictions that China has on online freedom for the most part. Um, the country is actually pretty no- notorious as a sub for hyper, um, a hub for cybercrime and also just, you know, hackers in general. But rather than cower or, you know, try to just destroy these people, the Russian state has worked with them to export chaos abroad. Um, they've worked with them to um, spread fake news and to um, just kind of poison the the media landscape for Europe in particular, but also America, as evidenced by the, um, the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal and other scandals that involved Russian hackers just putting fake news in front of Americans to scare them into swaying an election the way they'd want. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very interesting situation that the world and Europe in particular is very much aware of, but really unable to do anything about. So those are the two sides of the um, equations, but there can also be negatives to the traditional media houses and state just losing control of information because, again, that gives the opportunity for fake news to spread. Now that um, the... Um, attention economy is much more decentralized. It gives ordinary people the opportunity to spread information, even if they don't know it most of the time, because they would like to believe it. I feel like, again, a very recent example of this phenomenon would be the storming of the Capitol building following um, Trump's losing of the 2020 election. It was dominated by and planned on QAnon message boards and um, places where kind of pro-Trump fake news would spread like wildfire. And again, it's just a negative consequence of traditional media and, you know, practicing journalists losing a lot of their market share on what gets clicks and what, you know, gets seen and what is perceived as real. People, because of this excess of information, have the freedom to close themselves off in a bubble and just validate their own views. So I guess what I've been trying to say is that we have the obligation to remain both well-informed but also well-educated on how to navigate the internet and how to separate kind of fact from fiction and identify which sources continuously get it right and continuously getting wrong. But we also have the obligation to fight for our freedom to share the content we want to share and 
to retain some of the market share we've taken because again the internet belongs to everybody it's an internet of things we are the internet and we can't let state or central authorities take it from us because the path inevitably leads to censorship and oppression thanks for listening i'm sorry this is around six months late and thanks